Hello and welcome to Home Impressions, a podcast where we ask our guests to tell us five encounters with people, objects or ideas that have had a lasting impact on their practice and have shaped the artists that we see today. I'm Hajifanta and today I'm here with Henry J. Kamara. Henry J. Kamara is a British-born and London-based Sierra Leonean artist, creative director and teacher, creating still and moving image. With a keen passion for documenting major events and personalities, He's particularly interested in society, music and sport, politics and conflict. With a degree in English and creative writing, Henry believes every image has the potential to tell a story. His attention to detail and intimate portrait style enables him to craft photography with a depth and realness seldom achieved within traditional commercial photography. Determined to position the world through alternative lenses and unearth lost stories, Kamara has been able to merge his love for storytelling and documentary with his ability to create engaging commercial imagery. As a result of this, he has been entrusted to tell stories with brands such as Apple, Beats, YouTube, Nike and more. Believing his art is a vessel for sharing and making, Kamara dedicated the last year to help the Story of Me project funded by the Paul Hamlin Foundation, which aims to decolonize the literacy school curriculum in diverse areas. Teaching over 150 students across two primary schools in Barking, whilst regularly consulting with teachers about how change can be created in the classroom, he hopes it will lay the foundations for future work in holistic education. Henry also recently released a film which was shot in Tanzania and is called Moyo. It was shot at the Jipe Moyo orphanage and it's a portrait of the young people's lives and their spiritual journey through climbing. Hi Henry. Hello Hadra. How are you? I'm very well thank you. Can't complain. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, It's like I said that transition into this new season has been interesting Mm. Um, and slowly adjusting from the sun that we just had but I'm well, nonetheless. I'm yes. really happy to have you here. It's our first time sitting down properly and talking properly. Yes, so. yes, yes, yes. It's lovely to meet you. I think um, you can often feel connected with with people but without actually meeting them. Exactly. But it's nice to sit down and, and you know, have a nice physical chat and, you know, be able to look at one, in, one, in, one another in the eye. So, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's nice. Yeah, and hear more about your practice. And I think, like I said, like, I've been really interested in your work since around like 2017 2018 I think primarily obviously you're Sierra Leonean and I'm Sierra Leonean but also just technically your work is really really beautiful um and I think the ethos behind it is really special and it's you can really feel the connect between what your intention is and what kind of the output is and it's like this beautiful synergy that comes out and makes the images that you produce really wonderful. So I'm really excited to kind of explore these encounters that have shaped your practice um, and have like made you the artist and person that we see today. Um, Do you want to tell us what your first impression is? Yes. um, First of all, I'd like to say that this was extremely difficult. (laughs) I think partly because of my ADHD brain. It's oh, quite, twins, hard to, same. Uh, quite hard to narrow things down, but I tried my best. Um, I've got a long list and I'm just going to say whatever comes. Um, but the first one I'm going to speak about is, I guess, my culture and my heritage. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of split. Obviously, you've mentioned that I'm from Sierra Leone. Yeah. Um, so that, that definitely has a huge part to play. And also, I guess, sort of my spiritual culture and heritage as well. Mm-hmm. That's being raised as a Christian, Mm -hmm. Um, and sort of now 
as you can see in front of you, I've got some some dreadlocks. Yes. So that's just also understanding a bit more about my Rastafari and um, understanding how that influences my personal spiritual growth and also my art. And I guess how did you come to that, I guess, junction or being raised Christian and then kind of pivoting in a different direction? Like what does that look like for you and how do you feel like that shifted your practice as well? Because I think the two are sort of inseparable. You kind of grow alongside your practice and your practice grows alongside you almost like a friend. Um, So yeah. Yeah, that's a a beautiful way to put it actually because I think um, the art helps me understand life in many ways. I think um, it really is an imitation of my own personal journey. Obviously, yeah, just, I think being from Sierra Leone, um, there's a very intense upbringing that comes with that. And my mum, being a very spiritual person, being a Christian, raised me from a very young age, informing me of the spiritual warfare which exists mm-hmm. in the wider world. And so I think from a young age, I was just very aware of that. Mm-hmm. And that meant that I had sort of no choice but to come to terms with my own spiritual landscape and understand my own journey and and come to define what it is that I saw within myself, but obviously Mm -hmm. around people around me as well. Yeah, I think um, like being raised in the church made me very aware of that. And then when I left the church, so to speak, um, that's sort of when I went on my own personal journey to understand what it was that sort of I saw and wanted to communicate through through my art, I guess. Um, it was difficult. Like, I think anybody who's been raised in a religious household mm-hmm. knows that it's difficult to, to be given such deep philosophy on where we come from and how we understand the world around us without having gone through that own personal experience of, mm-hmm. of understanding that yourself. So um, I think partly that sort of, upbringing pushed me into this space of like wanting to understand myself more mm-hmm. and it ha- actually happened when um, I guess when I decided to lock my hair was after my first personal trip to Sierra Leone mm. uh, I went in in 2017 it was my first time going by myself without my family mm-hmm. so I think it just um just going back and just being in a space where you feel comfortable and just feeling closer to your ancestors it just made me more aware of where I've come from. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's like sort of the leaves of a tree understanding where its roots are actually planted. And um, yeah, I think it just, from that day forward, it just sort of rooted me in a new understanding of myself and wanting to document my ancestors, my people, like where my family are from in a way that was real and honest, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But then also just a chance to see where we're at, reflect and see how we can move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like through that process, something shifted within you, but not just kind of from a spiritual growth standpoint, but almost like where your starting point was. Because I think there's something about when you sort of have to take out the roots that have been placed in for you mm. and kind of kind of sow your own and start again. And I guess in that shift, did you see any changes in your 
artistic practice in terms of like what you were interested in shooting, what you were interested in documenting, what stories you wanted to tell. Um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> did. Um, at the time, I was in my, in my second year of uni. Mm. What did you study? I studied English and creative writing. Oh, yes, of course. Um, yes, yes I, I studied English and creative writing, which I guess formed a foundation of storytelling for me. Yeah. And I took a year out of uni and applied for an internship at Nike at mm. their European headquarters. I moved to Holland for a year. Oh, okay. And during that year, I was obviously just exposed to the the beast that is the commercial world. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I guess I, I looked behind the curtain, so to speak, and began to understand how brands form stories in order to sell products and how powerful that was and how much of an influence that had had on us. And I was really interested in that at that point. And then I went to Sierra Leone, mm -hmm. came back, and I think... I just became like acutely aware of like what we are fed as mm -hmm. people and as society and how it doesn't necessarily always urge us to push our boundaries and grow and learn more about ourselves. Mm -hmm. In essence, it's almost the other way around. It's like, you know, sit at home, you know, it's like order your food, it will come to you, mm -hmm. like, you know. Uh, you know, don't don't you don't don't have to go where don't don't walk to the shop, order mm. an Uber, you know, take you there. Like it's almost this um, you know, put your headphones on, you know, look down on you on a train, look at your phone. It's like desensitizing us from our own power. Mm -hmm. So I think understanding all of this stuff and understanding like how one of the biggest brands in the world does that meant that when I came back, I understood the power of just like how important a photo could be and like mm. what it can influence for somebody to do and feel. So I think that responsibility as an artist, like understanding that on a level, mm. like kind of came from that period. And um, I just became a lot more selective of what I decided to put my lens towards and what I decided to endorse as a person and as an artist. And it was difficult because mm. I had to say no to a lot of things and mm. a lot of things that would have put me in a much better financial position, maybe would have made me a lot, pop, lot more popular than I am today. Um, but it's just funny. It's like when I was working at Nike and I was doing lots of projects, commercial projects, like, you know, that's when your DMs are flooding, like lots of comments on your Instagram and like yeah. people are hitting you up and you're like, oh, yo, like, well done. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody loves you during that period, but. You know, when you make sacrifices and you make decisions that are for others as opposed to yourself, mm. often it can be difficult to feel like society is encouraging you on mm. that journey. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it was it was a difficult journey, but I think that's when I started to go more in towards sort of reflecting what was around me. Mm. So I started to move me more into documentary work. And I actually picked up the camera during that year um, in 2017 when I was abroad. Mm. I bought a little 35 millimeter camera, started shooting stuff. So you weren't shooting before? No, 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 no. I actually started during that during that period. That was like Sierra Leone. Like my first trip to Sierra Leone, that stuff that I produced, Keeper of the Flame, um, that was only my second trip away, like as a photographer. Um, so yeah, it's like 
that's like still sort of almost my defining work. And it was like sort of, sort of the first stuff that I'd ever done. That's really interesting. Um, I have lots of questions. <laughs> um, I think. So then I guess, did you know you had, was it something that just came to you naturally then? I'm guessing. Because you're really, I mean, like really talented. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I think from a, from a technical perspective, um, before that period, I had no formal training mm. or I didn't study photography at college or uni or anything like that. Um, which I think in some ways is obviously a bit of a limitation. Mm. Um, but I think I was able to like break free of any sort of like canon or like mm. you know way of doing things or like you know instruction manuals I didn't read any of those so I remember my first roll of film that I ever shot <laughs> I got back wasn't sure whether the film had loaded properly like <laughs> over the camera <laughs> destroyed the, the whole, whole roll thing. like oh, no, I know uh, just, you know just going through all those just making mistakes yeah you know and and I think that is another thing that has shaped my practice a lot is just like the ability to, sorry, am I allowed to swear? Sorry, I was going yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I won't swear, but like <laughs> making making mistakes, you know, yeah. um, effing up, being having the space to move into something like without, and just being able to like do something and then review it after um, and learn from that process. So I think, and that's why photography felt so great having studied English. Mm-hmm. And having to like, in order to write an essay, you got to like get all these sources and like make sure it's like, you got your primary and secondary sources, make sure it's well researched, make sure it's well written, et cetera, just to say something. But like the photo was liberating in that sense. It was like, ah, oh, just like, you know, just take just, just one snap and like you can say everything that you're trying to say. And that was like, that was truly amazing for me. And I think that that's what drew me towards photography. And then, yeah, and then, yeah, I think I've just um, learned as I've gone. Um, during lockdown, I did a lot of, like, reading, and that's when I kind of tried to master photography in that sense. So that's when I started processing my own film and, like, you know, buying a, an enlarger and making prints and stuff like that. So I say that, that that's sort of the only process I've gone through. I've, like, taught myself how to, like, really understand photography. Um, but yeah, but apart from that, just just kind of been winging it. <laughs> no, I think we a lot of us are. I think it's always really interesting to hear of people who come maybe from a different background into a different practice because it sort of brings a different perspective to it. Because yeah, like you said, you're not shaped by any kind of like canon or anything like that. You bring your own sort of framework and really have to think about how you want to communicate because you don't have all these like technical uh, well, I feel like you have the tech, you have the technical skills, but you don't have like it formally taught to you. So you're sort of operating freely in a way. Yeah, and I think also on that, I part I did um, an extra GCSE when I was in secondary school, and mm-hmm. it was art. Ah, okay. So I had to go like after school to basically <laughs> do, do all my this projects. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one of the things that I really didn't like about art and GCSE, and I only got a B um, in art, and the reason why I did was because it was split into two. So you had to do your research mm. and then you had to make your piece of art. Mm-hmm. And the research was this diary that you had to make where you had to basically demonstrate the inspiration 
from which your art came from. And it had to be dedicated to a particular artist. Mm. So for me, it was like, I didn't have any of those influences. Mm. I grew up in a Sierra Leonean household mm-hmm. where art just isn't a thing. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No one buys art, no one consumes art, mm. at least not consciously. No. So for me, it was like, especially this like Western sort of idea of art. I wasn't well versed in that. Mm. Um, so for me, I found that part of art extremely difficult. Mm. And I think that that has, again, sort of defined my practice. I can't, it's hard for me to sort of pick one or two artists mm. that have heavily influenced my work and it's mm. their work from which I kind of come from. It's more of this sort of like observation. I'm a, more of a mirror of mm. the things that I've seen and experienced mm. as opposed to like trying to link it back to this one artist mm-hmm. and, and sort of try and define this journey to where I've got to. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Um, just to track back a little bit, um, you mentioned kind of like, you touched on, I guess, what you perceive to be your role as an artist in society, um, but also kind of like finding encouragement in those decisions that you're making that weren't necessarily just for you, but for you and the collective we, I guess. Um, or the collective you. Um, um, and I guess I wanted to understand more about where you drew that encouragement from and also how that links to your role as an artist. At the moment, I'm really interested in what different artists perceive their role to be in society because I think it differs from different people. So, yeah, it'd be really nice to hear more about that from you. Yeah. Um, I think... The encouragement came from this, almost like this innate feeling of like a higher purpose. Mm. Um, Like looking around at society and feeling like we are not reaching our potential. Mm -hmm. And feeling like there was an imbalance. like I think being of diaspora mm. and having family and culture that's like from one part of the world, but like having a physical earthly experience in another means that uh, I've been able to experience life in a in a different way mm-hmm. than others. And that created... I guess, a sense of understanding of that imbalance. Mm. And because I was aware of that, I felt a responsibility to address that. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like that was almost my, yeah, it was, it was my role, mm-hmm. basically. So, yeah, I think this is not anything new. You know, there are, there are so many artists who have expressed this mm. same sort of feeling within their work and have tried to push society forward mm-hmm. to where we are now. Um, so those artists also gave me encouragement. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Fela Kuti, Bob Marley, mm. etc. You know, I remember going to work with my dad and he was a big fan of reggae at the time. And we'd be listening to like Bob Marley, but like not like... You know, not Free Little Birds <laughs> and, you know, the tunes that Make it, have yeah. been um, graciously accepted by Babylon and yeah. Western society. 
I'm, ta- I'm talking about, about songs like, like Exodus. I'm talking about Exodus, Exodus Africa, yeah. Africa Unite, yeah. and so much trouble in the world. Yeah. Um, so I think I think understanding those things, and then having gone back to Sierra Leone and seen that reality, experienced it, felt it, lived it to an extent, um, meant that I couldn't come back and be the same. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think for me, my, and it was also linked to my role as in my family as well mm-hmm. because I, I growing up I felt like I was that stereotypical sort of ugly duckling mm. within the family that doesn't quite look the same doesn't mm-hmm. quite think the same and therefore doesn't quite fit into what we feel like should be the right way of living mm-hmm. um and there's a there's a, a a really nice quote that I like. It's like the the stone that the builder refused will become the head cornerstone. Mm. And it's this idea that um, you know the, the you know the child or the person that doesn't look or think quite right is actually the one that is a part of that family to move things forward. Mm. Um, so so yes, yeah, so I felt that as a child you know, having a bit of a different perspective on religion and spirituality and, again, being the only one of my siblings being born in the UK. Mm. So that also made a difference. I think all of these things sort of mixed into one and meant that I felt like the responsibilities I had as a person, as a man in my family, meant that I reflected that in the art that I'd, I chose to make basically um and yeah and I think it's like I'm also just a very sensitive like deep thinker <laughs> um I spend a lot of time by myself which means that you reflect a lot you think a lot and um yeah I like to I like to observe a lot as well mm. um so, yeah, I think I think all these things sort of played into one in each other and um, also just the way that my brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, it just meant that I was, like, always looking for more and looking mm-hmm. higher. Uh, so, yeah, I think um, without sounding too, like, <laughs> too deep or crazy with it, I think art is, like, one of the greatest manifestations of life that we can create as individuals mm. and as a collective mm. so as artists we can't understate the responsibility that we have to make things that are honest mm-hmm. and are going to create a sense in society that we want to move forward from mm-hmm. um that's my personal mm. responsibility um i still love to observe art that just looks amazing Mm. or um it's just different Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. those pieces of art and those artists also play their role Mm -hmm. but this is what you've chosen this is what i've chosen yeah okay um no that's really beautiful i think it might segue nicely into what maybe be a second yeah 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 um, i feel like that was already about five but yeah (laughs) we move um i think I think I'm going to speak about this idea of youth. Mm-hmm. 
um, and this idea of like being young. Mm -hmm. I, this is actually something I didn't really realize until I got a little bit further on in my career and looked back, but I have photographed a lot of children mm. and I'm drawn to this idea of just the rawness that children bring, the honesty that comes with a child telling you exactly how it is <laughs> because they've not Where been shaped. Yeah. <laughs> um, they've not been shaped by a lot of the prejudice and conditions and ideologies that we have been shaped with. Mm -hmm. So I think spending time with children for me is like similar to spending time around that nature. Mm -hmm. It feels closer to this idea of like being closer to home for me. Mm -hmm. And I remember being young, like I've mentioned that my mom was like talking to me about a lot of very deep things from a very young age. Mm -hmm. So I remember being like, seven, eight years old, like thinking about life like mm -hmm. on, a, on a really deep level. And I, I think sometimes we don't give children enough credit to like learn from them. Mm -hmm. And I feel like children have a lot to give to society. And as adults, as we get older, mm -hmm. we get so caught up in our own ways that we, we lose that ability to be young. Mm. Um, and it's more than just a physical thing. It's like a spiritual thing as well. It's like this idea to still walk outside and like, you know, feel the sensation of the wind and it still mm. feels like, wow, like, you know. It's windy. Yeah, you know, yeah. and just like that. Yeah, that sense of curiosity. Um, so for me, that's like something that I spiritually am drawn to. Mm -hmm. And I think as a result, um, we, we spoke about Moya, mm -hmm. which um, is a, a project that we decided to do in April. Mm -hmm. I saw this video of these kids in in a small village in Masoma in Tanzania climbing this rock, like this boulder. And they were like laughing and joking, like barefoot, just like climbing up this boulder. And it just, um, I'd started climbing recently for personal reasons and it's really helped my own spiritual growth. and. It's the moment to switch off and also not think about photography. Mm. <laughs> um, so for me, it was like, wow, this is amazing. And and climbing has a very, very much a sort of European, um, American mm -hmm. tint up until this point. And um, I decided to book a ticket to Tanzania, um, got in contact with the orphanage, mm -hmm. speaking to the sisters um, who run the orphanage for a few months and just telling them about my intentions and then went... Um, met a guy who was also a climber and a DOP, told him about the project, met him once. And then the second time we met each other was at the airport. We went okay. together. Um, and then all of these, like so many amazing artists from editors to people who did the score, the music, the color graders, the people who did the posters, like everyone came together to make this project amazing. Um, and we did it not for profit. 
we screened the film at a climbing gym called Yonder. Um, so good, guys. Yeah, Hadra really was there. It was amazing. Um, it's just so grateful to everybody that, that came. And that project, I think, really, like, again, we're talking about what encourages you. It's like moments like that mm-hmm. um, where your faith in, in society and the people around you is restored by their ability to feel. And I wanted everybody to feel the inspiration that I felt when I saw those kids climbing. Um, I wanted to share that. And that's not an easy thing to do because not everybody is as spontaneous and as curious and as willing to just book a, type, a flight to Tanzania and go and see these children. So that's the that's where the artist thing comes in. Like It's like, how can you share that? Mm. And And if you can share that, what are you sharing it for? What is your intention? And how can we bring about a sense of moving forward and growth from that. And yeah, as a result, you know, we raised, we raised two and a half grand for the kids that night. Are um, the prints still available? Yeah, yeah, there Great. are. Yeah. Where can people find them? <laughs> <laughs> um, the prints um, are available at Studio Kabbalah. They're all handmade prints, mm-hmm. um, fine art printed at the studio, um, mounted by myself as well. They are available. The project is called Moyo. Um, all the photos have an amazing Swahili names, mm-hmm. um, which is gonna gonna make you feel nostalgic, gonna make you feel like you're back in Lion King and like watching these amazing films about yeah Africa and it's um it's a, it's a beautiful thing and and again all the prints um all the profits made from the prints go towards the orphanage, um so we're really trying to make this you know a sustainable eco- economic advantage for the children through art and just being able to. Yeah, being able to set up a system where people can support the children and also appreciate art at the same time and Mm -hmm. it can have purpose. Yeah, it was an amazing film. It was really, it was really moving. And I think it was really simple in a sense of like, it was like a simple topic and, but still like had carried weight and, you know, how something so small had such meaning in terms of like their resilience and like them trying again or even kind of their perceptions of their own gender and mm. you know what they envisioned for themselves and kind of like hope and growing it was just really really sweet I remember even like the videos of there's a perspective where it's like overhead and they sort of like drop each of them and just kind of how funny it is to them but they mm. still get up and go again yeah. it was really really beautiful um and you know, really showcase kind of like the smaller things that join us all together as people, um, irrespective of where we're located and what we look like and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of those things that you just mentioned, you know, are the things that I I observe most in children. Mm. And I think that that's why that film also meant so much because it was this idea that, you know, a lot of these children have, you know, either lived on the street or have gone through leaving their families because of early marriage or have gone through FGM and you know that ability to still be able to see life as beautiful and still be able to get up although life is beating you down and Mm. you know it feels impossible to try and get over this hurdle or this mountain that you're trying to overcome I think you know that ability to still do that even as a child um, was just yeah I'm just I'm glad that people were able to correlate that to their own personal experience because it's, you know, not everybody is going to 
be a climber or love climbing, mm. but it, it applies to your job, your relationship mm. to yourself, to the you know your family around you. It's like it does feel difficult, but it's those difficult moments that build character, and eventually you do you do feel like you've got over the other side of it, and that is that's a feeling worth fighting for. Yeah, and it just felt like they really trusted you as well, which I think is really important when working with kids. And I guess I have two questions. One, how do you nurture your curiosity? And I guess you also do work in classrooms. Yeah. Um, and how does, I guess, this knowledge shape how you interact with them? Because I think, yeah, like people do underestimate children. And I think... It's really interesting when you speak to kids on a level, um, how much they tell you and how much they reveal to you, how much they teach you and how much they do think about things. Mm. Um, my little cousin, she's six. She talks a lot um, and she's very, very like astute and aware. And it might be about small things, but or things that may seem small, but there's a perspective behind that that is quite big and quite grown actually. And mm. I think society we would benefit more from more interaction mutual interaction with children rather than kind of like a overpowering sense of interacting with them and i know there are times that we have to look after them and whatnot but just that kind of yeah, yeah. talking to them on a level yeah definitely and i think um it's yes yeah, it's, it's funny because i think it's also linked again with your relationship with your your own inner child. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think one of the ways that I've come to learn about how I nurture my curiosity is by looking after my inner child and making sure that that inner child feels heard, listened to, encouraged, um, you know, speaking life into that inner child and giving it space to learn and make mistakes and grow. Uh, that's, that's, you know, that's, and also just have fun, you know, mm -hmm. like I think we, we get to the point where we try and be adults, but it's like. Slowly boring. Yes, I mean, <laughs> responsibility, like, cause what I'm saying, I'm not like, there's a real, there's a fine line between being childish mm. and, you know, being youthful. Mm -hmm. And what I'm describing is not being childish, like not being lazy. What I'm talking about is a youthful attitude towards life and, you know, not taking it too seriously, taking everything as a learning experience mm. rather than sort of getting caught up with what we think is like huge mm -hmm. to us, but might actually in the grand scheme of things be quite trivial. Mm -hmm. um, and I think children have a have a great, great way of just, um, yeah, being able to, being able to just like be oblivious to some of that as mm -hmm. well. I think speaking to children also reveals a lot about ourselves um, and that relationship to our own inner child. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us as children felt like we weren't listened to. Mm. So as a result, when we get older, you know, we've not nurtured that inner child. So then we, when we interact with another child, we we just do what was done to us. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, as I get older, 
and I get closer to fatherhood at some point, mm. I'm also thinking a lot about how I want to nurture my own child, mm. you know, and what are some of the things that I think are essential for that child to be able to feel like they can grow in a way that is free mm-hmm. and, and you know, f- free of any kind of pressure or constraints. So I think, I think it's difficult. I think, you know, my curiosity at the moment is definitely fueled by my love of climbing as well. Mm-hmm. I think um, just physical movement and just having something that you don't need to think so much about. Mm-hmm. It's not linked to my ego in the same way that like you know someone's career is Mm -hmm. or like you know those kind of things I think something that you can do where you can just switch off just have fun and just enjoy progress as it comes Mm -hmm. is is great and you know some of the things that we've spoken about that the children sort of experience through climbing I've also come to understand and sort of approaching something for the first time it feeling impossible like trying it getting shut down like coming back the next day, spending the day thinking about it, like, mm-hmm. oh, like, what if I did this different or what if I did that different? And then also just the physical the physical journey and learning that your body goes through and understanding the, the movements and stuff like that. And you come back the second day now and you're like, you try it and it's like 10% a bit easier. You're making mm-hmm. a tiny little bit of progress and that tiny bit of progress encourages you just enough to get back and try it again. Mm-hmm. And then you just go through that process and then eventually you get over the top and what initially felt impossible, mm. you, you've you overcome. Mm. And I think that, that that feeling has been, yeah, absolutely essential in my own personal growth. Mm. And yeah, has meant that I also now approach everything else in my life with the same attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah. Um, I'm also just like, quite spontaneous yeah i so. mean yeah you booked a flight yeah, yeah yeah you know that that stuff like that thing that how that's... did you communicate with the kids did you guys have like a translator or yeah 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 so um so when we were in tanzania because yeah when we got there we we became very aware that most people speak swahili mm. and we needed somebody to communicate on a level with the with the kids um, and also could understand what we were trying to do as mm-hmm. filmmakers. Um, but yeah, one day we were coming out of our hotel and, um, you, you know, Okada. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. In Tanzania it's called something different, but, you know, What's it called? basically, um, if you remember. yeah, they don't really have like a specific name in the same way. Mm-hmm. But for those who don't know what Okada is, it's, uh, it's like a motorcycle taxi. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get these guys who sort of are on different junctions of different roads and you can jump on the back of their taxi, they take you wherever you need to go. Um, but yeah, on the first couple of days, we met this guy called Eddie and he took a, he was taking us to the Jipamoya mm. orphanage. Um, one day we started talking, noticed he spoke really good English mm. and he was telling me that he spent some time at university in the UK and, you know, he had studied in the UK and um, was really interested in in sort of, yeah, just like understanding more about what we were trying to do there. And it also just, it was quite interesting because when we were on the back of this taxi, he'd like, there's this school that we went past that was built in the 1800s that the first president of Tanzania went to. Mm. And as we went past, he'd say like, this school was built in 1860 and our first president did it. You know, like he was just naturally just giving us these history lessons and 
you know, describing the environment around us in such a beautiful, elegant way. Mm. Um, so it was like those stories. And then in the introduction of the film, there's a, a story that is told in Tanzania about the way that the rocks are placed on each other. Because mm. there are some rocks and boulders that are like perfectly balanced on each other. You know, when people mm-hmm. go to the beach and they make those like sculptures of mm. putting rocks like perfectly balanced. Um, it looks like that's been done. Mm. And um, there's like an old folklore tale that the ancestors were giants mm. at some point and they sort of placed the boulders they were playing with them mm. and sort of put them on top of each other. And he told us that story. Um, and as soon as I heard that, I was like, you know, as a filmmaker, you're always inspired yeah. by stuff. And you know, I was like, <laughs> like <laughs> that's it. Like, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that, that became uh, one of the stories that we tell in the film. And then we, we just sort of gradually got him more involved. And, mm. and then um, we, we asked the sisters um, at the orphanage if Eddie could come for dinner. We introduced him to the sisters. We sat down, we ate. Um, they gave us their blessing for him to be around the children. And sort of it all just naturally happened from there. Yeah, it seems like things just came about with this whole film very naturally, serendipity and like... Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, well, I mean, we didn't really have... I didn't go out to Tanzania with the intention of making a film mm-hmm. or like I didn't really have a defined intention of what I wanted to make. It was more about just wanting to go there and, and spend time with them and mm-hmm. share that space with them and then sort of whatever okay. was made as a result of that was made. So, yeah, a lot of it was discovered along the way and in the process. And and that was like quite beautiful to make it that way because there was no pressure. There's no, mm-hmm. no deliverables, no yeah, deadline. Uh, gosh, anything deliverables like don't. <laughs> um, so your third impression? My third impression? My third impression um, is kind of two in one, but they're both linked together. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is this idea of process. Mm-hmm. And this idea of process um, was sort of lit inside me when I met somebody called Deval Timothy. Ah, another Sierra Leonean, right? He is another Sierra Leonean. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think when I met Deval, it was 2017. And... It was just before I had actually booked that trip to Sierra Leone. So this is the first time I've ever gone to Sierra Leone by myself. And I was speaking to a friend of mine about connecting with artists that might be in Sierra Leone at the time. And she recommended me to speak and connect with Deval. And at the time, I didn't didn't really know anything about him. Uh, But it just so happened, you know, we exchanged details. We spoke a little bit about when we'd like to be in Sierra Leone. And it just so happened that he was flying out the day after I was there. Okay, wow. So we said, all right, cool, let's link up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in Sierra Leone and he came over to where I was staying and we had a conversation about life, basically, mm-hmm. at that time. And at the time, um, my auntie had just passed away and like my mum during that time like took it very deep and she was sharing a lot about what it was like for her to grow up in Sierra Leone at the time and that was part of the reason why I'd, I decided to book my ticket to go at that time and 
we were having this conversation and uh, I didn't know it at the time, but he recorded the conversation. Uh, and then about four, four or five days later, we're standing um, on his balcony in his house in Sierra Leone still. And he hands me these headphones. And so I put the headphones on, uh, like standing on this balcony, looking at the lions, mountains, like in the middle of Sierra Leone's beautiful. And like, then there's this like amazing piano track mm. that starts playing. And then on the piano track, after a couple of minutes had played, I hear like what I've been saying in that conversation, like played back and uh, on top of the piano. And yeah, it was like, so intense, obviously I was talking about my diaspora and we wanted to come back because um, just wanted to get closer to my parents, understand them more, et cetera. And he was working on a project called Tusim, mm. <laughs> which is a phrase um, that Sierra Leoneans use to describe people of dual nationality. This idea that, you know, the same way that you can have a phone, yeah. <laughs> a phone with two SIM cards, um, you know, we operate with two passports, Sierra Leonean passport and a British passport. And in the same way that, you know, as a photographer, you'd go out and take street photos. He used to go out with his recorder and like record the street markets, record conversations, etc. And um, he recorded this conversation of somebody speaking about two SIM mm. to him. Um, and that had inspired a piece that he was making talking about diaspora and dual nationality at the time. So that interaction with Deval obviously then inspired me wanting to like explore my own diaspora and my own nationality. And it was something that I was already feeling inside, but like meeting Deval, he described later that like him meeting me was like meeting a younger version of himself because mm. he had gone through the same journey. Um, so it's quite special. Well, then we spent the time sort of like living together and working together during that time and just getting to know each other. And um, yeah, he, he made an amazing album, which is on Spotify. You can listen mm -hmm. to Tusim. There's a short film that he made for that. But like even more than that, um, I'm sure he won't mind me saying that like Deval's a very special person. Mm -hmm. um, he only wears blue. So um, for that period of time, I met him. He only ever wore blue t-shirt, blue trousers, mm. and blue shoes, um, <laughs> which I thought was just like sick. And then it's just like this this idea of process, you know. He's um, he's he's one of those artists that are completely free of the expectations that like the industry consumerism. Like this idea of like making work for others, mm -hmm. like he's just f like free of that, mm -hmm. um, and he's just all about process. It's all about like it's not only about the final product, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of artists sort of struggle with. Is that like oh I've just got to make this final project. I've got to do this. I've got to, like it's got to be this. It's got to be sick. And in doing that, you forego this amazing process that happens of actually creation and making something which I think art is important art is great and it's nice to like look at something on the wall or on a on a film screen but the process of actually making something and the intention of going out and doing it is where the bulk of the 
process and the learning happens. Um, so when I met Deval, I think he like that interaction just really confirmed that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and how somebody like him could be so happy with just the making process um, and not needing uh, sort of any sort of kind of like recognition from anyone else or anywhere or any kind of industry really. Um, and just that I think has allowed Deval to get to a place with his art where it's so honest mm-hmm. um, and so true that like it's not everybody's cup of tea and he's not the most popular in the world, but it's such a defining sound and, and process and art that it's like only him, like mm-hmm. only he can make stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. it's, it can't be imitated. And, and I think that that's how as artists you find your style, so to mm. speak, is by like really isolating yourself and understanding what it is you do and why you do it. Um, and yeah, and you know, now he's a Grammy nominated producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just, like just produced Kendrick Lamar's last album. So I think, you know, he's just like, he, he is somebody that I, I hold in very hard regard mm-hmm. and high regard. And, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky enough to call him a brother. And, um, yeah, his music was in in Moya. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I think, again, he's just, like, a very purpose-driven artist, somebody that um, is making work for the process mm. and and that being an enriching thing to do and it being a privilege. Um, so as artists, we, we love to, like, make vinyl products and, like, be able to get that out and show people. But I think for a lot of us, we... We lack the process and appreciating that. Yeah, and I think it kind of speaks to why me and Ronan were really interested in ha- doing this podcast because you get to understand a bit more than just the final product, which is often really beautiful and really wonderful. But how are these things stitched together? What yeah. are the building box blocks in these final pieces that we get to engage in? Mm. And sort of like demystifying it as well because I think... You know, like you said, artists can get so caught up in the final product that sometimes they forget how simple the process can be and mm. how it's not, you know, it shouldn't be so extractive yeah. from yourself, but actually kind of something that is expansive. Yeah. Um, and comes out in this final product. Mm. Um, and I guess. In terms of like process, what are some of the things that underpin your process? I mean, you've spoke to, you know, your spiritual growth and kind of your intention and kind of like nurturing curiosity. I guess are there other things that also sort of build that foundation um, of your work? I think... I think a lot of it to do is also to do with like history mm. and like what's come before us. Mm-hmm. So this idea of like life is not like I didn't just come here to just enjoy my own life. <laughs> Basically, it's like I'm not just this sort of single organism that is here, like living as a single body to just enjoy that single life. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're all connected. Um, 
to each other as we exist in like this this same field together now, but also as like a long line. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, my purpose as a human being, as an artist, is also defined by my father's and his father's and his father's and, you know, et cetera, and his mom's. And it goes back. And I'm a result of all these things. And I'm a, I'm a product of the history that has come before me. And it's really important, I think, as people, for us to understand that history mm. in order to contextualise what it is we're meant to be doing mm-hmm. and, and experiencing and moving towards. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, the the deliberate modification and retraction of certain parts of history mm-hmm. has meant that it is almost impossible for some of us mm-hmm. to find that and understand that. So for me, it was important for me to understand my history, understand the important parts of our collective journey that have defined where we are today. And personally for me, a lot of that, or my role personally, like I said, like it's come from my personal sort of lineage. And that has meant that a lot of my focus has been around understanding Africa, understanding Sierra Leone more specifically, um, understanding black people and black liberation and understanding how our family have been spread across the world and why that happened. Understanding slavery, understanding colonialism, neo-colonialism, understanding Marxism, understanding capitalism, understanding feudalism, all of these, all of these like parts of history that have meant that we've moved forward in a particular way and we've taken certain steps um, have defined the person that I am today and defines all of us. Mm. So I think going through that process of understanding that history and in some ways unlearning certain things, Mm. relearning certain things, um, and then understanding how that then links to photography. Mm. there's a really interesting book um, by a guy called Mark Seeley called Decolonizing the Lens. Mm. And it's, it speaks to some of the photography that was taken during the height of uh, colonialism. Um, some extremely difficult images to see. Mm. Um, images taken during King Leopard's reign mm. of the Congo. And understanding what photography was used for at that yeah, time. it's really different, isn't it? Um, right? Yeah, yeah. And understanding how the cultural landscape of a photography changes as you look at it through different lenses of history. Mm-hmm. Like looking at those images now and the purpose of those images now is completely different as to when it was taken. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's just like understanding that 
And also just understanding the language of photography as well, you know, mm -hmm. like this idea of like taking a photograph, capturing a photograph, mm -hmm. shooting something. Like all these things, there's a reason why the language is is the way it is. So for me, it's like, you know, as opposed to saying I take a photograph, I say I make a photograph. Mm. And that definition, that clear sort of decision to not use the lens, to extract something from a place is very important to me. Mm. So when I see projects, whether it be film, photography, whatever, that are extractions the same way that you'd go to Sierra Leone and mine diamonds, the same way that you'd go to Ghana and steal gold. Mm. You can go to places and steal people's identities yeah. and steal people's stories. And that's been done for far too long. Mm. So for me, it's like, you need to understand this history. You need to go back and look at things in order to really understand the role that you play. Mm. Um, and I think as artists, we need to, again, come together and really take responsibility of what we make and why we make it mm. and to what, to what purpose, because art is the greatest influencer of life and life influences the art we make. So that journey and that relationship between the two we need to really just like we need to really manage mm. um so yeah the the history is another thing that again you know these a lot of the things i'm speaking about that are things that have shaped my practice are like these larger mm -hmm. much more broad i guess ideas ideas but you know within that there are things that are baked into them. But I think ultimately a lot of these are going to be intimately linked with my own personal growth as a mm. person. And, you know, that personal growth is then reflected in the art. Um, but the history is definitely, is definitely one. Beautiful. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Um, your fourth impression? <sighs> my fourth impression... I am going to choose. So I'm going to bring us back. I'm going to bring us back to lockdown. Because mm -hmm. I think for a generation of us, that was a defining period. Um, I think during that, during that time, I, like many of us, did a lot of reflection. And one of the things I was quite inspired by during that time was this sort of shared experience, mm. like this, um, this collective experience. And for the first time, actually, for a very long time, I felt this sense of, like, global community. Mm. Like, you felt like you were going through the same thing that people were going through everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And again, like, 
the feeling of that is extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, what we were, what we felt that for, was not the best reason. No, no. But I became really obsessed with this idea of this, like, this universal collective being that was experiencing something at the same time mm-hmm. as one another, and. During that time, I think I spent a lot of time reflecting on my own personal journey and how that then influenced the journey of other people around me. So I actually went back during that period and looked back at all of the work that I'd made up until that point, because obviously it was very difficult to go out and take photographs and you know be able to document the things that are happening around you. So a lot of that process ha- had to happen internally and look back, looking back on the things that you've already made. And I was able to find a thread between the work that I'd done in Sierra Leone. I'd done work in Ethiopia. I'd spent a year and a half um, documenting the people and the businesses that worked in Lewisham Council mm-hmm. because of the regeneration that was happening in Catford. Mm-hmm. And then is that where you're from? No, no, that's not where I'm from. But I spent some time um, living there for that. I thought you were for a fellow South Londoner. No, 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 no. <laughs> East Londoner still. I'm scared. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was able to find this like thread between everything. And it was this, again, this is like, I made this book called Universal Spirit. And I did these like online readings of this book, like kind of run it almost like a podcast where I like play some music that that was inspired by the book. And then I'd run through the book with a group of people online and I'd written these like really poetic captions for each of the photos and I'd like read the caption, go through the photos, et cetera. And just to share other people's experience I think a lot of people after that reading of Universal Spirit understood the closeness that we felt to one another. And I think I was reminded that through photography and through sharing art, we can really share this like sense of collective oneness. And I think up until that point, it was very much about like where photography could take me personally. But that was one of the, like that period um, of lockdown and COVID was one of the times where I really like appreciated everything that we had around us. Again, like even being able to travel mm-hmm. after that, having spent so much time in, in Sierra Leone before that period, again, like being able to travel and, and make photographs elsewhere was was something that was huge. So, so yeah, I think I think this idea of this like universal collective experience um, that we all share is also something that I think defines my practice and shapes how I choose to not just make my work but also share it mm-hmm. as well. Because I think we've we've become really accustomed to consuming information in three seconds, mm-hmm. like. You know, just just through scrolling through Instagram and, you know, scrolling through Twitter and, you know, you make a decision on something super quick. Whereas, you know, 
whenever I show somebody my work, it's always with physical pieces of work. Mm -hmm. It's always prints, it's always books. Um, whether that be like dummy books that I've made by hand or, you know, prints that I've made in the studio because there's like something about things being tangible mm -hmm. and like being able to hold something and look at it and understand how it makes you feel, I think comes from igniting more than just your sight. You need to be able to like really play on all of your senses. Um, so I think, yeah, being not being able to do that during that period meant that now I'm even more sort of determined to make sure that my work is positioned in physical spaces mm -hmm. and, you know, is given the space to be experienced by people that are willing and able to really, like, come to terms with looking at something and feeling it and understanding it. Whereas I think, yeah, a lot of the time it can... Um, great work can go amiss mm -hmm. because we just don't spend enough time looking at it. Mm. Um, so. um, and I think it's interesting how you bring people together in space. Um, I think that going to see a film in a climbing space was really fun. Like we all sort of sat <laughs> yeah. down. I haven't sat down cross-legged in another <laughs> physical space that's not my home yeah. um, in a really long time. Mm. And um, seeing familiar faces, but it being sort of like, you know, you're here to see something really meaningful, but also to just be as well with people yeah. and kind mm -hmm. of like share space with people. 100%. Um, the intention was really felt with that, like people invited to climb. I had my nails, so I didn't climb. <laughs> but um, it, yeah, it felt really nice. Like even sitting upstairs, like how people sat together. There's another artist that Ryan who, um, was there and he was drawing at the time and it was like me, Adam and another friend. Um, yeah, and it just felt like a hangout, yeah, which amazing. is like really, really nice Amazing, um, amazing. To, to be in that. And I guess I'm interested. I mean, you spoke a little bit about how you foster community and I think you foster community in a way that's not necessarily like, I'm outside and like, hey, well, go on, like, what are you saying? Da -da 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 -da. So it seems very intentional and like very kind of, in small but like meaningful and impactful ways. Yeah. And not small is the wrong word. I think impactful and meaningful, but concentrated maybe mm. is the better word. Yeah. Um, and I want to hear more about like the studio, um, Kevalai, and also what that means. Mm -hmm. And also kind of like how you straddle, how do you balance you and also community? Like where, how do you, glide between the two mm. and find that like a balance yeah um yeah it's um i did like i like i mentioned earlier i spent a lot of time by myself probably more than most people do mm -hmm. and it's something i've tried to address mm -hmm. <laughs> um you know being present more mm -hmm. um but i think I think you know with with the studio um studio Kabbalah, that that's actually my own given Sierra Leonean name mm -hmm. um means one who never tires from war mm -hmm. um so it's quite the title and um, Bibure was called is it was Bibure yes 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 that is that is where the name comes from and for me it just it just speaks to this 
sort of relentless ability to keep coming back and facing battles mm. and being able to build something that transcends personal gain. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the studio, the studio really is, you know, a space to incubate ideas mm-hmm. um, for artists to come and share feelings that, you know, perhaps in a commercial space or the space that they normally make work, um, it's quite difficult or there's some sort of mm-hmm. conflict. Uh, we we're really interested in making work that is for the purpose of others and has this sort of economic sort of value that is given back towards the community and it's not about like the artist being the center of the work it's more about the process it's more about what the art achieves mm-hmm. in society once it's been released or once it's been sort of screened or premiered somewhere so for me the studio is also a space for me to just give back as well i think we spoke about this briefly before we we started recording um and how sometimes as artists it seems like there's a lot of opportunities out there with like competitions and you know things that you can apply for grants but i'm just someone that i've never had luck mm. with that kind of stuff um and i think because i've never really had luck with it i've refrained from seeing that as like a viable way for an artist to sustain themselves um so you know for me the studio is also another way of being able to provide some of those opportunities and those interactions with artists that you know have the answers to some of the questions that you know i was asking at that time and you know in the way that my journey is you know that you know the greatest thing that i can do with my experience and my journey is to share it with someone. Um, so, yeah, I would love to be able to like meet a younger version of, you know, me and nurture them and being able to sort of give them the advice um, that I wish I had at that time and be able to help sort of bring stories to life and and share what I can. So, yeah, that's the idea of the studio. We're, we're going to be launching um, a support school um, where we're going to sort of take on one artist and they'll be able to use the studio as a workspace and I'm going to produce a small exhibition for them and we've got some amazing friends who are also amazing photographers who are going to going to also help out on that process and and sort of share their knowledge and insight as well so I think yeah it's just really just a place that I just want us to stay connected because I think also especially as like photographers in London there's so many of us um and often we're competing against each other and we don't know mm. it. And, you know, I've been up for jobs and, like, <laughs> like the stuff come out. And then I've seen, like, it's a friend that's, like, mm. got shot it. And, you know, um, for me, it's just, like, rather than competing for spaces at agencies and stuff like that, I think we're just more powerful together. Mm-hmm. So if we can build a greater connection, a greater sense of community, then we can share what we learn with each other mm-hmm. and you know we can we can help each other progress and, and move forward in that process so I also hope the studio is a place where people who I'm also inspired by and people who also do great work can come and feel like this is the space where I can just sort of just drop my ego and just sort of just ask for help if I need it or share the information I have with with those that need it around me as well.
Very beautiful. Thank you. Um, I guess this is the last impression. Um, can you tell me more about it before we close out? Yeah. Um, I think I think a lot of what I've spoken about has kind of all linked into one another. Mm-hmm. Um, again. Again, I found it really hard to do five definitive ones. Um, Looking down at my notes, I feel like I've touched upon a lot of what I have put on down. Mm -hmm. But something has come to my spirit, I think, that I'm going to talk about. And like, I'm looking up at the window at the moment and it's raining. And you can probably hear it and it's this idea of like seasonality mm. and how like with the sea like same way that the seasons change it's like not sunny all year round mm. doesn't rain all year round in London it might but it, it might do um, <laughs> but there's it's as an artist it's like it's impossible to stay motivated 100% of the time mm. and I think what I've come to be okay with is understand that things happen in seasons and the same way that sometimes, you know, it could feel like summer sometimes in your own personal life and things are great. Work's coming in, you're creating stuff that you love and you're passionate about. And then, you know, winter hits and it's difficult to, to engage with those around you. It's it's Mm -hmm. difficult to, be the person that you are in summer. Mm. Um, it's difficult to find the motivation. It's difficult to sometimes be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I've mentioned briefly, I've got ADHD, which I've had to also come to terms with as well. Mm. And I think in some ways, like, our body, in the same way that like the natural seasons change, our body goes through changes as we grow that can ultimately have like a massive effect on the way that you feel about your experience. Mm-hmm. And I think coming to terms and understanding that has meant that, you know, I really give myself periods now where I do nothing. I intentionally mm. do nothing. You stole my question. I was going to ask you, how do you respect that seasonality? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's exactly that. I, Especially because, you know, when when you're an artist, often you're a very, like, sensitive person. Mm. And it can be very difficult to turn off that mm. sensitivity. And, you know, as well as, you know, making art and making beautiful things that are incredibly emotive and moving is a positive byproduct of that in the same way. I experienced the negative byproducts of that sensitivity. And, you know, that happens in my personal life. And I've had to really grow as an individual Mm. in order to understand that that seasonality, that, you know, it rains sometimes. You know, sometimes it's sunny. You know, sometimes it's a bit cooler. Mm. Sometimes it's a bit hot. Yeah. But you're sweating, but you're trying to deal with it. And I think I've just kind of, kind of come to understand that my practice is the same. Mm. And it's not going to be sunny flowers blooming all the time. Sometimes 
things need to be destroyed in order to build. And I've come to peace with that process now, I think, more and more. Each time I go through that cycle of feeling great, mm. not feeling great, coming back to terms with things, unlearning, understanding, relearning, I think that process and that balance has... It shapes all of us individually differently because our seasons are all different. Mm. But I've come to understand that through that, my season is not going to be the same as somebody else's season. Mm. And I've really, like, learned that we all, like, it's essential for us all to have our seasons. And sometimes you might have come up with somebody, you might have worked together with someone, and maybe you've drifted, drifted apart for one other reason or not. And, you know, you've gone on different journeys. That's okay. Yeah. Like, that's all right. And and I think it's important as artists to to get in touch with your own season and just understand that you're here for your own journey. Um, so, yeah, definitely. That's, that's, I guess I define that as that seasonality and understanding sort of the universal balance of how that, how that operates for my own personal career and growth. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way to like tie everything together. And I think that is the, that's why we want to have these conversations to be aware of what those seasons look like for other people and kind of hopefully there's a shared understanding of that and people relieve themselves of a lot of pressure. Mm. And I think, yeah, you tied everything together really nicely. It was very, very poetic ending. And I just want to say thank you so much for being so honest and sharing your process and your thoughts with us. We're really grateful. Um, you. Can you tell us where we can find you? Yeah. And we can find some of your work. Definitely. Well, first of all, I also want to say thank you for having me. Um, I've not done, this is my first podcast. Yay. I don't often get a lot of opportunities to talk about my work. And yeah, I appreciate you acknowledging me as somebody who has something that is worth sharing and Absolutely. worth listening to. So um, that means a lot. I really appreciate that. And if you would like to learn more about my work um, and you're inspired, my Instagram is jkami, J-A-Y-K-A-M-M-Y. And from there, you can find my website and other bits and pieces that you can link to and, and read more of my work. Amazing. Thank you so, so much. Go check out Henry's work. It's amazing. Um, thank you for listening to this podcast. Season one has been supported by Gucci. And thank you and speak to you soon. Bye.